0: Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings Podcast, episode 32. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always every week, is the rambunctious Mitchell Davis. What's
2: up? not much how's it going
1: it's going good uh kind of a rainy overcast morning here which is really really good because we've been in a super drought uh this summer uh like many other areas
2: tell me about it yeah.
1: um and uh but yeah everything else is cool i'm ready to do the show how are you doing
2: good good um just uh enjoying a. Uh, a week of I've been on vacation this week and uh, got to visit some parts of of Florida, really nice, and uh, just a, a nice, relaxed Sunday morning, um, kind of quiet with the, my wife and son kind of taking an excursion, so, you
1: know. No Levi on the drums this morning?
2: Nope, no Levi on <sighs> the drums this morning. Oh, he's uh, He's out in the streets with Mama, so... <laughs> So it's, it's a lot more quiet than it normally is. So.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. Um, well, this week we are talking about, of course, five new albums from Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die. We're going to talk this week about The Birds, uh, their album Mr. Tambourine Man, uh, then a collaboration between David Byrne and Brian Eno, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, Followed by Café Tacuba, their album Cuatro Caminos. Uh, then an uh, album from Uri Kane, Ehrlich Primal Light. And finally, Camarón de la Isla, his album La Leyenda del Tiempo. Uh, so uh, diverse stuff this week. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, some cool stuff, some stuff I hadn't heard. Uh, well, really, I hadn't heard any of this stuff except the birds stuff. Uh have you had had you heard any of this stuff previous well, to this
2: week? Um the same pretty much the same. I mean most of these recordings uh I was so I thought I was pretty unfamiliar with. And then I, uh, you know I before with the show I, I kind of sent you a message. The uh, uh Cafe to Cuba I kind of knew a little bit just from just from you know the the line of work we used to do, there was a lady uh, named Letitia we used to work with. I don't know if you worked with Letitia. She loved them, uh, and uh, I want to say that that was just one of those things where they they were just this huge sort of alternative group from Mexico that that just they were like one of the first groups like that that you know basically took you know sort of Mexican you know you know rooted music but but had an alternative slant to, it. and then the the project between David Byrne and uh and Brian Eno, uh one of the songs we're gonna talk about, I had it on a on a cassette tape, ironically. And I, I thought I thought it was Cabaret Voltaire, which is funny, and you know, we'll get into the reason why I thought that. And and until I listened to the track that you selected uh that we listened to this week, I was like, wait a minute, you know what? I I'm pretty sure I've heard this before. And it was just a thing where uh at the time a local uh, radio station KTRU, which broadcasts off of Rice University, uh, played a, a a song off the album, played this song, um, I think the Jezebel Spirit. And I they didn't say who it was. It was like one of those things where I caught it. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't hear the DJ say, you know, you know, that was so-and-so. But it was on a tape, like I said, that I had. And I, I just had, had that, you know, in my mind for years. Like, man, I wish I knew who that was, you know. Uh, ironically, you know, we... <laughs> you know, sort of, you know, brought it back up. So, I, so this is one of those records, and I, and I'm, I really wish that I I had picked this up years ago because it, it's such a groundbreaking record, especially for the the method of of sampling. And like I said, we'll yeah. we'll get into all that yeah, later. Yeah, we'll but, get into that. But yeah, that, that's like really the only thing. All, all the rest of this is is you know pretty pretty new to me. It was, it was stuff that I I hadn't heard, which is which is obviously the you know the point of the book. You
1: know. Yeah, totally. So we're going to start with The Birds and uh, their album, Mr. Tambourine Man, released in 1965. And the lineup here is uh, Jim McGuinn on lead guitar and vocals, Gene Clark on uh, tambourine and vocals. You know, it's the 60s when you got one member of your group dedicated to the tambourine. But anyway, uh <laughs> David yeah. Crosby on rhythm guitar and vocals, Chris Hillman on bass and vocals, and Michael Clark on drums. And I didn't know that, uh, yeah, David Crosby was in The Birds. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, this is one of those, you know, cool things about David Crosby. He's obviously been tied to some really, really important groundbreaking groups uh, in his lifetime. Uh, just, you know, one of those guys that's that's, that's been blessed enough to have, you know, that, that path so to speak where he's he's had some ties to some amazing groups um, especially in that period. so and, and and just the birds, you know their, their influence is it, it's really understated. I mean if you look at, at at their history, I mean when they came out, I mean you know, obviously they had you know to deal with sort of like I guess the British invasion. but I, I would say that their influence is just as big. You know, as as say like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, you know, and not just in this country, but but around the world. You know, I would say they're when you really start to look at bands, especially then, but even now, you know, a lot of groups that are that are still recording their their influences. It's it's amazing. It's yeah. it's very deep. Yeah. Yeah, um,
1: really deep. I mean, they pretty much pioneered the genre of folk rock and in the mid 60s. And McGinn, uh, Jim McGuinn, the lead guitar player, he created this sound with his electric 12-string Rickenbacker guitar ah. that became really, really influential in that the rest of that decade. I mean, it, even George Harrison picked up on that sound for subsequent Beatles albums. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, George Harrison and the Beatles were influenced by the Birds, who were influenced by the Beatles, you know, earlier Beatles. Damn. Um, and I mean, really who in the sixties wasn't influenced by the Beatles, but, um, but it's kind of cool that they sort of retroactively influenced the Beatles, you know, and, and contributed, uh, this sound to this later, these later Beatles albums. Um, but yeah, yeah, this record, uh, this, uh, album, Mr. Tambourine Man was recorded in Los Angeles in 1965. And, uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, we're going to start with this song, you know, their song, Mr. Tambourine Man, the big hit, the first song that was released by them. This is a cover of a song by Bob Dylan, and uh, it's kind of interesting because the recording of this song is basically Jim McGuinn playing lead guitar with a bunch of studio musicians, a bunch of L.A. studio musicians, and... Gene Clark, David Crosby and Chris Hillman singing over the instrumental track recorded by LA studio musicians because at the time their producer or their manager I can't remember felt that they they just weren't there yet and so yeah. he he said okay your first singles you know you guys you guys still suck and you know, your your first single's going to be recorded by these dudes not you until you can get it together. And, uh, so yeah, this is studio musicians on this, on this track. Um, yeah. What do you think of Mr. Tambourine man? Yeah,
2: I, I love it. And that, that, that fact, I, I did not know that. I mean, I guess it's just one of those, like you said, like a, you know, like a, their manager and a record company or whatever this, you know, kind of made, made that decision to manufacture their first hit single, which you know in, in, you know, looking back now, I mean, it's it's sort of one of those things where it was just like something they just had to do, because obviously, I mean, they're all, you know, they're way past that point of, of where they sucked, you know. <laughs> they don't they don't suck anymore. I mean, it's the living members anyway. Right, right, um, right. It's just, a, just a, a groundbreaking song, you know, a song that, that basically sort of defined an era where you, you have this song with this kind of jingly guitar and, and, and almost poetic like lyrics that that influenced a, just a huge amount of 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 musicians and 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 all all sorts of artists to to just kind of, you know, you know free themselves, so to speak in in, in terms of where they they had sort of like a a place to to, you know, have a point of reference. I mean, for, for a psychedelic you know sort of hippie type era I mean it was it was really sort of like an anthem you know and um you know the the lyrics kind of you know hint at uh, you know a, a guy that's being influenced by you know the so-called tambourine man and, and and you know and how he how he'll follow him as he plays and you know a a, lobby, a lot of people have kind of you know you know Sort of made a, a reference to you know the the so-called you know drugs that that may have you know played a part in the, the making of the song or the influence of the lyrics and and you know that that can be put there and it doesn't necessarily have to be the the true meaning of the song but you know just one of those songs like I said that it influenced so many people with the way it sounded that like you said that guitar and and just the the kind of harmonic lyrics you know that like i said so many people took that sound yeah. you know and and just made it you know made it their own i mean you know the the mamas and the papas simon & garfunkel you know all sorts of groups from from that era that that just you know surely just just sucked up the whole you know folk rock you know hippie rock, if you will, type sound. I mean it was it was just such a great turning point for, for that era, so to speak. Yeah. I guess.
1: yeah, well what this album did was it took folk music out of the acoustic realm and into the realm of rock and pop and psychedelia. That's what that's yeah. what this that's what this album did. And before this folk music was modeled on you know Woody Guthrie and uh Pete Seeger. You know, that that model from the 40s using acoustic instruments. And you had earlier groups like the aforementioned Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and a lot of people who sang these songs with acoustic instruments. A lot of times just acoustic guitar themselves, accompanying themselves on acoustic guitar. And uh, after this album, man, this whole genre of folk rock, just like you were saying, exploded it just the impact on the rest of the 60s and the early 70s cannot be understated you know uh, of, of this album um, it was huge yeah so uh yeah. let's uh let's check out this first track and just you know hear it hear the cool. sound hear the sound that, that spawned really the rest of the 60s for for a huge part uh so this is the birds with mr tambourine man
3: play a song for me I'm not sleeping Onto my own parade. Cast you fell my way.
1: I to go under it. And we just heard Mr. Tambourine Man from The Birds, and we're gonna move on to their song Here Without You. And you know, one side thing, I always assumed that the birds were British, <laughs> and they're not British. They're from no. LA. They're American.
2: No, um, definitely had British influence for sure, but but no, they. I mean, they were you know definitely an American you know product, you know, for sure. Uh, and uh, I, I I would definitely you know. I I agree with you. There there are some elements of their music. You can hear the influence of, of British music. Like you like obviously the Beatles, you know, and, and the Moody Blues, some other groups like that. I mean, that influence is, is definitely it, it definitely is there, I would say. Um and it and it's good to have, you know, sort of like you said, the the, the give and take where they, they influence people, you know, you know, overseas with with their sound. Um it's it's a it's a great sort of testament to to what they what they were able to kind of come up with in in that period where some like you said so many things had had been you know done before with i guess what you would call folk music and then to have it sort of turn like this and especially in a popular way you know it it was it was something that just went on and on forever like um one time i i remember seeing a a record uh, a solo record that uh, uh, Jim or Roger McGuinn uh, put out in the early 90s and at the time I, I didn't really know who he was and um, you know I, I could hear uh, on this record I, I want to say Tom Petty was on the record and, and a bunch of other people and I was like you know who's Roger McGuinn I, I just said that kind of you know haphazardly and then a lady I worked with was like you know you don't know who Roger McGuinn is? I was like no I have no idea he's like He's like one of the most influential guys. I mean, just here and around the world, he he's just just amazing, you know. And and like I said, I at the time I I didn't know because you know the, the, their legacy sort of really didn't turn the way a, a lot of the groups that we talked about, you know, the 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 Beatles and in the Stones. I mean, they you know they kind of had different lineups and and had you know some different issues, you know, legally with you know two of the guys in the band kind of splitting off and having a whole different version of the birds and but uh still you know just just tremendous and and even now you know like okay like groups like REM, I mean they they definitely have a huge uh influence i would say yeah. from the birds yeah. i mean i mean if you listen to there's like and obviously i just said tom petty i mean you know i mean just tom petty just he's just a total you know, sort of electric, sort of folkhead, you know, Bob Dylan, The Birds. Oh, yeah. You know, it's
1: funny. You, yeah, you mentioned Tom Petty, because when I was listening to this album, that's immediately one of the names that came into my head. I was like, yeah, I can hear, you know, how Tom Petty would be influenced by this. And I could, well, I could like it, so like I could hear this in Tom Petty's music, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say Roger McGuinn's probably one of his one of his so-called rock idols if you would I mean along oh, yeah. with Bob Dylan and you know I I would, I would definitely you know they you know it's, you, you cannot separate their their influence from from what he he does and then you know some other some other uh, groups you know like Big Star like we talked about them you know earlier uh in the year I mean I, I hear their stuff being influenced by by the birds and um you know, maybe even like the Smiths. I mean, they they kind of have that same kind of jangle in their guitar and, and the way the lyrics are. I mean, yeah. You know, I I would definitely I would put them there too. I mean, dude. Yeah, you know, they
1: we can we can go really on and on about because like real. like I said before, it cannot be understated. It cannot, yeah. be, it cannot be. Uh, I, I, rather, <laughs> I say, yeah, cannot they, they be overstated. Rather, yeah, they have a huge, cannot be overstated. Their influence cannot be overstated. Yeah, huge influence. Um, I
2: mean, Mr. Tambourine Man is one of those songs that's been. I mean, it's been done by everybody. I mean, there's a version apparently that William Shatner has done, which is. Oh no. I mean, I, I just <laughs> can only imagine. You know, it's one of those songs that's been covered by by a ton of people. Yeah. So, you know, they 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 definitely. I would I would say. You know, or I mean they're a rock and roll hall of fame, I believe, already. Um, you know. Yeah. They're just one of those groups that just they I don't think they get enough credit. They get a lot, but but it's it's one of those things they 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 probably should get a lot more than they do. You know.
1: Right. Well, I think one reason they might not was because their the period, you know, uh was very, very short. You know, this period uh where they recorded these albums, Mr. Tambourine man and the, and the sort of other hits like a uh, uh, turn, turn, turn and all that stuff uh, they yeah. really defined that sound was really only maybe two or three years, maybe like yeah. 65 to 67. And so I think, uh, you know, unlike the Beatles that had such a longer run of huge, you know, they were influencing everybody their entire run, you know, 10 or 11 years or whatever. Uh, maybe that's one reason why, you know, is, is that their their hugely influential period was so short. Short, yeah. Um, yeah, true. And, uh, you know, I picked this other song on the album, uh, Here Without You, which uh, I don't know if this was one of the bigger songs. I have no idea. But this just really struck me. I mean, it has that same sound, of course, like the whole album does. And it starts with that Trademark Jim McGuinn 12 string guitar sound, but the thing that really grabbed me on this song, you know, uh, other than it being sort of a little darker, a little moodier than a lot of the other tracks, were the vocal harmonies on this song. And I totally agree with you, very,
2: very pleasant. Yeah, yeah, every
1: song has vocal harmonies, obviously, that's one of the trademarks of their sound. But for some reason the vocal harmonies on this one just really jumped out at me. And I just thought, wow, those are those are great.
2: Yeah, they yeah. they they soar. That's the first thing I thought when I listened to this is like like you said, the harmonies on this track, it they're they're just they're beautiful. And that's one of those things too where their influence crossed so many lines of of what people probably wanted to do and could do with the music and the lyrics and the vocals. They, they had such a great mix of those three. And, um, you know, like you said, that that's one thing that struck me about this track too, was the, the vocal harmonies are, are very good. And, um, you know, I, again, going back to a group like the Mamas and the Papas, you know, where they, where they, they relied so heavily on vocal harmonies as a group, I w- I would say that that was one of the things that they would take from the birds as far as their influence. Oh yeah, and um, and and make it work. And um,
1: well, even again, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'm go ahead. Well, I was gonna say even um, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, you know exactly. the 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 sort of formula here, the vocal harmony formula in the birds is. I think what I read, and and you can hear this on any of the songs, is that Jim McGuinn and I think Gene Clark would sing the main melody line in unison, and David Mm -hmm. Crosby would sing a vocal harmony line, you know, uh, with this. And this is exactly the formula, not even like, it's exactly the formula that Simon and Garfunkel adopted, except, you know... Paul Simon didn't have a third guy to sing in unison with him but it's that same two-part vocal harmony you know the same thing that the birds pioneered here.
2: Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another group too the Beach Boys. That that's another group that kind of comes to mind especially where the vocals are concerned. I, I would say that, you know, that that probably was a a, a de- definite sort of, you know, Influence here or there, where where they're they're concerned. I mean,
1: well, I, mean, I I think maybe, but the Beach Boys, early Beach Boys, predates this. I think maybe the Beach Boys were an influence on the on the Birds and not the other oh, way around. Oh, really? Oh, okay. And uh, the Beach Boys, their vocal harmonies are much more complex than the. I mean, these vocal harmonies are beautiful, but it's two part vocal harmony. The Beach mm-hmm. Boys is, you know. Four, part you know sometimes more vocal harmony Uh, to me like nobody sounds like the beach boys i mean Uh their collective sound um is just unique just totally unique to me but um but i think yeah i think it would have been like the other way i think i think the beach boys would have influenced the birds uh because they just were simply earlier than the birds. Okay, I,
2: I and I, I I didn't realize they predated. I, yeah, it's my, I stand corrected.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the albums that we've talked about, that we talked about on the show, were after 1965, like uh, Pet Sounds, you know, was after 1965, but the, their early hits were uh, before this. I think like okay. 63, 64-ish, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, do you have anything else to say about "Here Without You"?
2: Oh no, just let's just listen to it. This just a really great song. Um, Yeah, yeah. Good, good pick. Just like you said, really beautiful. You know, lush even vocal harmonies. Just, just make you want to sort of you know fly. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right, so let's check it out. This is second track from the Birds. This is "Here Without You."
3: Time just makes me feel lonely At night I can only dream about
1: And we just heard here without you and we're going to move on to our second album David Byrne and Brian Eno My Life in the Bush of Ghosts released in 1981 and the title of this uh, my life in the bush of ghosts is taken taken from a novel by Amos Tutuola written in 1954 and really you know I read that neither one of them had read the novel <laughs> so I think it was more like they took the title because they really felt like it captured something, you know, that they, that they, you felt, you know, was right for the album. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't really research the novel because I just thought, well, if they hadn't read it, (laughs) it obviously didn't really, you know, have an impact on the album, you know, other than the title.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think maybe just, Just probably knowing, you know, kind of a bit of what the book was about and the title was enough. You know, they 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 just took it from there, and 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 it really is. It's it's a good sort of, you know, reference point to look at what what the album is is about and and what they were trying to do. I guess uh, in a lot of in a lot of unusual ways, Um, but um, definitely a, a. groundbreaking record one of these records where once i started listening to it and and learning about it i immediately wanted to own it and and thought to myself i wish i had bought this record when it first came out (laughs) yeah i mean even though I was maybe what about i mean literally maybe about 13 years old 13 12 years old i guess somewhere in there
1: i i Um, wish i would have bought it well you know for the reasons that you're talking about but also there's a track uh, apparently on the original Vinyl release that you can't get anymore. Yeah, um, the the track called Quran, um, which featured Muslims chanting the Quran over, you know, electronic beats and stuff. And apparently, yeah. uh, there were some Muslims in high places that didn't like this, and took it up with David Byrne and Brian Eno, and whatever was said. They ended up removing it from all subsequent releases.
2: Yeah, David so. Byrne was basically saying that like they, they they didn't want to they didn't want to upset anybody, especially yeah, yeah. you know the nation, you know, that, you know, the Islamic nation. I, I was getting ready to say nation of Islam. That's not really what I meant. Um I mean they they were just trying to, you know, sort of, you know, break some new ground and 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 you know do different things. And I mean they they even said or David Byrne said that Going into this, they knew that some people were going to be kind of taken aback with, especially some of the samples, like the sample on on one track uh, that we're going to talk about, where there's a man and it, it and it sounds as if he is doing an exorcism. Um, and uh, you know, they knew that a lot of people, some people, were not gonna not gonna receive this record well. But it it wasn't like they were trying to you know offend anybody or. Or take a certain stance or viewpoint politically or, or, you know, religiously or anything. It's just two guys that, you know, who are sort of, I guess, musical geniuses is, is you know, that that might be kind of like a, not the right word, but, but two guys who are definitely adventurous when it comes to, to making music and, and producing oh, yeah. tracks, especially for this period where sampling and, and tape loops the, the digital side of it was not even present, which that, that's the thing about this record that that is so incredible to me, where you you sample something and and put it on tape and you're playing it live in the studio in a rhythmic sense to where sometimes it really works and then sometimes it really didn't. So I know that right, right. they probably had takes like you would not believe. I probably <laughs> they probably went through so many takes on, on different songs yeah. and then sometimes things would work by accident where it's like, okay, we didn't mean for that to happen, but that's really good. Let's keep that, (laughs) you know? And I mean, I can just see the two of them, you know, you know, noodling and behind the boards doing different things. I imagine it was, it was really fun, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it was really fun and, and and could be exhausting and frustrating too (laughs) at times. I wanted to talk a little bit about Brian Eno because David Byrne is, I think the more famous or more, more widely known, I guess of the two David Byrne of the talking heads and uh, Brian Eno is somebody that is really pervasive uh, in the music of the seventies and eighties, even up to the nineties. And now Uh, more, uh, more of like a, as a collaborator and a producer, um you know he he's sort of a you know he's a musician, he's a producer and he's kind of an ambient and electronic music pioneer. Um some of the collaborations he's done, uh, obviously he he did he did this one with David Byrne. Uh, he's worked a lot with David Bowie especially around this time. Um he you know they they released several albums together. One is called Low uh, david bowie's album low which i really like and actually yeah. uh, classical uh, composer philip glass um based his first symphony on that album it's called low symphony um which is really it, it's just kind of an orchestrated version of music from that album but it's it's cool uh he's collaborated with robert fripp the guitarist uh, from king crimson and other people as a producer he's produced people like talking heads uh he produced the u2's album Joshua Tree yeah uh, that James. was that was a
2: big one yeah just oof.
1: yeah yeah uh, lori anderson coldplay depeche mode devo paul simon grace jones and a bunch of other people um but yeah the, like you were talking about you know this is one of the first albums to use sampling but you know i really see this as a direct line from uh, Karl Heinz Stockhausen to the Beatles uh, Revolution Number no. 9 to this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, this all, you know, what, what a lot of rock critics and rock historians miss is that they, they sort of attribute this as the first time a lot of this stuff was being done. And it was really, it was an early example of this stuff, but it was not the first time. And they miss uh, that composers in the classical world were doing this stuff in the 50s and 60s they, they were really the first ones to do this stuff like i said Karlheinz stockhausen was doing this stuff in the late 50s and early 60s um, and before that uh, even in the early 50s this all started with a french composer named pierre Schaeffer. He, he dubbed it music concrete where he would go around with a tape recorder which was brand new at the time and he would record sounds, like everyday sounds, car horns and babies crying and all this kind of stuff. And then assemble it and manipulate the sound into these pieces, much like Revolution 9 of the Beatles. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the early and, and, 50s, and, um, not in the late 60s. And, and then, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
2: Just thinking that, the and the, and the result sometimes, what, what came out on the track was not often really reflected as the original you know sound of what was taped obviously and i it, mean that exactly. was exactly that was that, that was really yeah that really was, extraordinary that was know? the
1: revolution of of this music concrete because they realized that you can record these sounds and then you can change the sounds yeah you can manipulate the sounds and change them which at the time you know was a totally revolutionary concept and then would create these sort of um, art sound art pieces really is what i sort of like to call them and yeah, then uh yeah. so there was that tradition the music concrete tradition and then in uh, 1958 we get the first electronic music piece uh, called poem electronique by composer edgard varez um, that was composed for the world's fair in 1958 that was the first piece ever to be a p- piece of music or whatever you want to call it to be composed by all electronic instruments. And so these two, this is a sort of direct line from these two things that happened in the 50s. Um, And like I said, then with with further experimentation, of course, Beatles, uh, like I said, revolution number nine. But yeah, man, doing this stuff on tape, man, is so, like you said, haphazard. And I had to do this when I was in school studying electronic music in a class You know, where you you have to do stuff on reel to reel tape, and you're sort of like moving the tape with your hands across the tape head to find the space between the sounds, you know? (laughs) So, and then you could, and then you literally slash the tape with a razor blade, Mm. you know? And you're cutting tape, physically cutting tape with razor blades, uh, taping it back together with special tape. Um, and you're, you're, you know, doing all kinds of stuff with the tape decks and, and it's it's a really Stop. interesting process and it's not, you know, now we have digital, we have pro tools, everything yeah. can be manipulated down to the microsecond with, with absolute precision. And it was not like that when they recorded he, this album. No, they had none of that. This yeah. was a
2: completely analog recording that, 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 and that's the thing that, that just blows me away. I mean, uh. I mean, they they had to really kind of, like you said, you know, kind of be, you know, on the spot with a lot of this, and 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 try, you know, you know, repeatedly to, to get certain things right, where you know, for whatever reason, the the tape would fall, you know, in a place where it, it wasn't the right place, and you know that to me that that's that sounds like work, a lot of work, and then the to, to throw in also to. Uh, a number of you know you know kind of traditional instruments you know the bass and drums but also this recording the the thing that makes it different is they would they would bring in other things to to play like instruments that weren't instruments at all for instance like there's a there's a frying pan they use on a track where they they play it like a snare drum also a cardboard box uh it, it in the liner notes it says you know, Found objects as one of the instruments, you know, and I was just like, you know, that that could have been like anything, you know, you know, right, beer bottles, right. uh, you know, just just anything that they picked up that thought we need this sound, you know, and we're going to get it from whatever, you know, right. and I mean, there's so many groups, um, you know, that that do that now, um, uh, Einstein's and Noah bottom which I think, you know, they they're like one of the first groups that I ever saw. uh uh, live to bring up things on stage like you know all sorts of power tools and uh one time they had like a grocery basket that they had and they it looked like they had like this like a buffer uh like a floor buffer that they they use and they they put it in the grocery basket (laughs) to make this just this crazy hideous sound i mean you know that kind of stuff you know i think was 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 definitely you know kind of like an influence from this record where they would just they would do whatever it took to get the sound that they wanted and sometimes I imagine they may not even known what they wanted until they heard it, um, which like I said that can be just so so adventurous and I yeah. I, I would say you know groups like you know Carrie Voltaire and Front Two Four Two. As as far as the sampling element, I mean, they they definitely must have been influenced by this record. I mean, because oh, when yeah. I hear it, I hear them. You know, and I hear the the sampling is it, it, it's so close to what they were about those groups. Yeah, uh, and yeah. and right before that period, kind of jumped off too. So the so-called industrial music, you know, sampling period, I, yeah, I would right, say was right. was a huge influence from this record. It just just a great you know great time. You know, to have something like this come out. Going back to somebody too that we we talked about last week, uh, Kate Bush says that this record left a big mark on popular music. Um, so she was influenced too by this record, apparently. Uh, and and what she did, I mean, she there's definitely a lot of sampling on Hounds of Love uh, that's kind of close to this. So um, just a really cool record, a cool collaboration, which you know, one of many between the two of them. Yeah. Um, Just, uh, and then like you said, Brian, you know, can't say enough about him. Just, uh, you know, was a member of Roxy Music, you know, big influence there, you know, with, with what they did in their early days. And and like I said, the, the stuff that he did with U2 was, I mean, that was just, that was a weird period because, you know, U2 kind of was, they were already popular, but after they collaborated with him, I mean, it, it took them to a whole nother level
3: yeah, that yeah. I don't I don't think
2: yeah. that they they even thought was possible. You know, um, they, they were all, they were almost nauseatingly popular <laughs> 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 after that point. I mean, I, I, I say that, you know, kind of tongue in cheek, but but it was I mean, I mean, you cannot hear with or without you on the radio without turn. I mean, you turn the radio and it was on like almost every station. You know, and they just kind of created this this weird atmosphere together with with, uh, you know, the production sounds and ideas that that, you know, you know, partly came from Brian, Eno, But anyway, um, yeah, the guys, he's amazing. So. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the first song we're going to hear is the Jezebel spirit and uh, the sampled voice on this. You said earlier it's an it is is an unidentified exorcist. So that's the sampled voice. And uh, he's trying to exercise, just like what the title says, this Jezebel spirit out of, uh, yeah. <laughs> I assume, some woman, um, and, or man. Uh, who, who
2: knows? You know, it's a spirit. They can they can inhabit. You know, I guess. Whatever. I guess.
1: <laughs> um, and the music to me, you know, is is very Talking Heads, but also, you know, to me, it sounds like David Bowie of the time, like Fame era David Bowie. Yeah. And it also reminds me of a lot of stuff off of Discipline, uh, King Crimson's Discipline, which was also released this same year 1981. Um Ed, what do you think of this?
2: Uh I I love the rhythm of this song. Um it, it kind of almost it has like a like a like an African type rhythm to it. Um and then the sampled voice, I mean it's just one of those things that I, I think this track it was huge in the sense to where suddenly you had all these, you know, ministers you know, being sampled that had nothing to do with the type of music that was being played. But you had all these, you know, especially Christian ministers all, all of a sudden showing up on all these records. And I, I think this was just one of the first that I mean, and again, it, like you said, it's an exorcism, but it's it's the cadence in the man's voice and and the way it comes off on the track i mean if you heard it separate from this song it 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 would not have the same the same feeling i think but when they mix the the samples and the and the keyboards and and the rhythm track with his voice it's it like it, it takes on a whole new life and um I think that's a, the fun thing about this is it It kind of makes you want to go, okay, well, well, that was cool. Let's try this now. And, I mean, it, it, it makes you want to seek out certain things. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things, I think, with this record also, too, that was really funny. It took a while to actually release the record. They kind of did it in between, you know, Talking Heads touring and making different records while the samples had to be cleared because that was one of those things, too, also where – they were very cautious about how they put that side of the record together and not having to want to face any kind of legal action. Because, you, I mean, obviously you use somebody's voice without their permission, they find out, you know, however much time elapses later, and then you have, you know, lawsuit, which I'm sure yeah. that they, you know, they didn't want that. So that that took a while apparently to, because they would they would have a track made and or, or or the album completed or whatever, but they had to sit and wait for the legal process to work itself out to where you know they they had all their bases covered, and um, you know some other groups that that you know later in the years, uh, De La Soul, for instance, you know had to go through that process in in the negative where you know they would sample people, and it and turn out great, but not get the sample cleared for whatever reason, you know they're. Their fault, the record labels' fault, whoever's fault, and then wind up having to turn around and fix it afterwards. Apparently, that is a a pain in in the neck. Where it's just like, oh God, you know, we've already got this done. Especially if a song is a hit song and you haven't had a sample cleared. I mean, it's it, apparently you do, you do not want to do that. <laughs> apparently, it's it's bad. So that's that's another issue with this record where the, they had so many things that they sampled. You know from from things that had made been made or recorded maybe 50 years before this where they had to seek out you know whoever was representing the individual that was sampled and apparently that was not easy too sometimes it would be hard to trace down you know legal representation relatives anything you know so um just a a really interesting record um sort of like a just you know an adventurous you know let's get lost let's let's try some different things let's break some new ground i mean just so i can imagine just uh you know the recording sessions for this being a lot a lot of fun you know
1: oh yeah 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 um yeah my wife just brought me this uh information on jezebel um which apparently she was a queen and um was basically overthrown um, and thrown out a window.
2: Uh, yeah, Jezebel to, and, to be
1: and the, and the- e- eaten by dogs
2: or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, Jezebel in the Bible was she was she was not a nice person. Let's let's just put it that way. I mean, well, just, I think
1: uh, I think this is sort of saying that she's gotten a sort of unfair rap. Um. Uh,
2: I, I, yeah, I would say that. I mean, Jezebel wasn't doing, especially in that period, she wasn't doing anything that a lot of male, you know, you know, leaders w- were not doing. I mean, she was, you know, she just kind of you know slept with whoever she wanted to, and you know, but but she but but being a woman, you know, she like you said she she got an unfair rap. You know, that that's the same thing today. I mean, you know, you know, there are a lot of men that kind of just you know kind of do whatever they want as far as you know being promiscuous promiscuous but but when women do that you know they they're frowned upon you know they they can't you know you can't do that that's you know you know you're a harlot or this or that and I think that I think in a sense that's yeah that's definitely where she she gets a bad rap I think the the manipulation issue too where uh I mean you know we could kind of go on to, to Jezebel and detail but but yeah i see she probably does she probably gets a bad rap well
1: sure. i think i think that whole thing of her sleeping around and all that stuff is is uh not correct it's not historically correct it's a it's a sort of um uh something that that came about uh because of <laughs> sort of uh, what I'm reading here is sort of political intrigue and uh, attempt to discredit her. Um, mm. And a- apparently she wore uh, when she was on the throne, apparently she wore cosmetics and um, that associated her with painted women or prostitutes. And then that sort of name became synonymous, but apparently Yeah. That's that's she's, well, she's gotten a real bad rap. Yeah, and, and, but
2: also, also too. I mean, let's let's. I'll put it like this: Jezebel was not a. She was not a saint. Let me just say it like that. I mean, she definitely had her issues. I mean, she may not have been the devil, but I mean, the whole <laughs> issue with okay, the, the the temples. I mean, they basically had temples where they, they you would you would go to these temples and basically they were temples to have sex or, or orgies and you know. I mean and this is just in the this is in the Bible I mean we can kind of go you know back and forth about you know it did this happen or is the Bible accurate right, you know right, right. I'm just telling you you know what what the Bible says right, you right, know? right and I mean you know with that I mean there was a lot of stuff that went on where I mean that was just an age where you know orgies were you know they were very common you know and and people were just they were they were doing all kinds of stuff you know that Now it would be looked at as like, you know, are you kidding me? You know, and I mean, but anyway, you know, like I said, we could we could have a whole nother show about about Jezebel and the the Bible. So anyway,
1: well, yeah, Um, yeah, we could. So let's let's listen to this uh, song, um, The Jezebel Spirit by David Byrne and Brian Eno. In the name of Jesus, come on destruction, come on destruction, come on please, Jezebel you're going to listen to me, Jezebel go ahead sister, keep blowing, Jezebel I banned you, she was intended by God to be a virtuous woman, you have no right there, her husband is the head of the heart. heard the Jezebel Spirit by David Byrne and Brian Eno and we're going to move on to their song Very Very Hungry uh, and I thought this was er, uh, interesting because this wasn't part of the original album so this wasn't released on the original album in 1981 it was only part of the re-release in 2006 which uh, in the on the 25th anniversary this album was remastered and re-released on CD with a bunch of additional tracks and alternate tracks and, uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, when I first chose it, you know, when I was listening to the album and I picked this, I didn't realize that this was not on the original record. Um, I don't, what did you think of very, very hungry?
2: Uh, just, you know, really cool rhythms again. Um, you know, just great working of, of, of the, the, the sound of the recording again, where, you know, they, they kind of are just trying to, you know, you know, do different things with, with music, with sound. And, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of similar to the, to the first in some ways. Um, I I definitely think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those tracks that that just totally makes me look at the, the influence on the so-called, you know, an industrial music category that, that came, you know, in the, you know, sort of early 80s, early to mid 80s, you know, and and how people use, you know, different, you know, rhythms and beats, whether it be like African or Latin rhythms, um, you know, uh, going back to, to Cabaret Voltaire, like I said, and Front 242, uh, New Order. I mean, a lot of groups, I think, that, that came up, with sort of electronic, you know, rhythmic dance club music if you will. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a lot to this record, you know. And yeah, I mean definitely. that when you hear this song, I mean you just you hear that sound that was that was very dominant in the you know, the mid to late 80s and kind of early 90s too. Um and um I would say that that this is a record that it, it's a gem if you if you love that type of music, you have to go back to this record and and listen to what what they were doing because you know, there was so much made of um you know, Eno and and in the work that he did, you know, with a variety of people, but I think this is one of those records that people don't talk about enough, really. Yeah, um, I
1: agree, even, dude. Yeah.
2: Even down to the the cover they said that they wanted to kind of have something that reflected what they were doing musically. So what what they decided to do was uh, kind of take these video shots of TV monitors and um, have whatever was on the monitor at the time, whether it be an actual program, a test pattern, or just static, you know, and, and take it and work it into what they were gonna do for their cover and liner notes. And and if you look at the cover, you can kind of see that where it's it's just like a sort of, you know, manipulated, morphed version of a TV screen. Um and it's it's just a cool sort of artistic expression from uh from the both of them. Uh just just two really kind of great minds and spirits working together and and trying to do something at the time that that was really, really fresh and different and, uh, and exciting. Um, and, and glad that they're both still, you know, trying to do the same thing, you know, always trying to, to, to stay ahead or keep different, um, you know, no matter what, I mean, at David Byrne, for instance, I mean, I know a lot of people, um, are, are really ho- hoping that the talking heads get back together myself included. Um, but I understand what, what his mindset is of, of just trying to to kind of get away from that, and and to just you know, totally do something, you know that's that's not that um, so to speak, and yeah. uh, you know a lot of people have have kind of you know wondered you know for years you know why why don't they get back together? Well, and he's just one of those guys that's you know like Brian you know he's he's just always wanting to do something new, always wanting to create something you know different because people say that everything's been done. You know, and these are two guys that totally challenge that, you know, where it's like, you know, I I don't think so, man, you know, maybe so. But I I'm going to see what I can do to to kind of prove that theory wrong, so to speak. And I mean, even with this record, you know, several years ago being released, it really does not sound very dated um, when you listen to it. So, um, yeah, I
1: I agree. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I just just really (laughs) grateful for that that spirit and music that, that says, you know, I'm going to try to do this differently and I'm going to try to do it, you know, with a, with a clear mindset of what I'm about, you know, and, and, and see what we can do. I mean, you know, I mean, th- these two guys, have, I mean, obviously they're, you know, they're, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but I mean, some of the influence that they, they have, you know, especially on this record, the world influences, I mean, you know, you, you kind of figure, you know, why go there? I mean, you know, you guys are, are you from Africa or, you know, South America or anywhere? And they're probably like, no, but why not? You know, <laughs> that's what we like. That's what we're interested in. We're, you know, here we go. So I think David <laughs> Byrne is. I think it was born in Scotland. Um, yeah, I didn't
1: know which that. Which you kind
2: of like, you know. Which I mean, they he he came to America eventually, but you kind of figure, you know, really, why? What made you come to where you are? And I mean, he's he's just one of those guys that's that's always been kind of a you know really quirky and, and 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 different in in every aspect of his being i mean you know so you know I, I again like i said just just really glad for for all their collaborations and and uh especially this record It's just a great discovery uh you know yeah yeah to, to read in this book so
1: yeah yeah so yeah yeah definitely go back and listen to this album and marvel at what they did with tape recorders you know, oh, yeah. it's just—it's just, it's just uh, really impressive. So yeah, let's, let's let's check out this last track from David Berman, Brian Eno. This is very, very hungry. we just heard very very hungry by David Byrne and Brian Eno and we're going to move on to our third album for this week Cafe Tacuba Cuatro Caminos uh, which means four paths or four directions yeah um, four roads
2: something like that yeah uh
1: released in 2003 and uh, Cafe Tacuba were formed in Mexico City in uh, 1989 and uh, they released their first album Cafe Tacuba in 1992 which was part of this uh, rock in español movement that was <clears throat> that was coming out at the time. Um, yeah, what do you think of? Ka- oh, I was gonna read the. Um, I was gonna start um, saying the uh, the band members because I thought you know people should know.
2: Yeah, the, they, the band members.
1: Uh, yeah. So the band members of Café Tacuba are Ruben Isaac Albaran Ortega. Uh, lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Emmanuel del Real Diaz, keyboards, piano, programming, rhythm guitar, melodica, and vocals. Uh, Jose Alfredo Rangel Arroyo, lead guitar and vocals, and Enrique Rangel Arroyo, bass guitar and vocals. Um, yeah, what do you think of this band? I, I really, I really liked them first off, but yeah, yeah.
2: just uh, my my first uh impression of them was they they kind of have um the spirit where they they sound like you know they they basically obviously you know you know came up in Mexico all their lives and and loved a lot of the things about about music from Mexico but also loved a lot of things uh musically from from the United States especially alternative sounding music uh, music where you you have a sort of like a new wave or postmodern sort of feel to it and um you know i, I think they took you know that influence along with uh you know the, the spirit of a lot of a lot of mexican music and and blended that in a way that was really cool and new for for a lot of people and i i've never really been a fan of theirs myself but i've just known about them uh you know, since our days of, of working in, you know, you know various music stores, I used to always see their their name and, and uh and have people even come in looking for them, uh, where it was just like, you know, you, if you don't you don't know about them, I mean, this is like fans of theirs coming in buying their music, and you like alternative music, you really need to listen to them. I mean, they they fuse, you know, all sorts of music. I mean, new wave and ska and punk and, you know, it's just like one of those those bands that that Came up in Mexico, but had just a huge, you know, influence of new wave and, and alternative punk style music from the United States and from, I guess, it from Europe and England and all those places. So, um, you know, that was definitely my my first impression of of what they were about and and you know how they kind of came along and and just seemingly have this almost cult following um, in Latin America where they they go places in it to see these massive crowds show up to see them play um, and just these you know, mosh pits break out. And I mean, I hear about all <laughs> sorts of, you know, wild stuff at their, at their shows. And I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, I guess what you would call alternative music here in the United States, you know, where it's just in Mexico. So. Um,
1: yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, this, this band, it's kind of funny. It really reminds me a lot of, or this album, I should say, because this is the only Cafe Tacuba album I've heard. Um, it reminds me a lot of Japanese rock and pop in the way that they pull from all this wide variety of influences and sources, Yeah, you know, but they, and they sort of use all that and create this sort of mashup with their own native styles. Definitely. And definitely. to make it their own. And another band this reminded me of was bloke that we talked about before another Latin group that sort of does the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, pulls from all these different genres and all these different influences and sources. And you really get this album like this one, uh, you know, quatro Caminos where you get all these songs that are from real, seemingly really disparate genres that you don't really see very often on American or British releases. You know, usually American bands are one genre you know they're a punk band, or they're a metal yeah. band, or they're yeah. a dance band, or electronic band, or whatever, and that's they what they do. They and don't, I, don't
2: spread out like this. I yeah, mean, yeah, you've got the,
1: everything the, on this album.
2: Yeah, the only the only time I would say, and I and I, I thought this too. Also, where somebody else had brought this up, another American group kind of like them, that they they come from a certain area, but they pull sort of all sorts of influences. And and then kind of make their own sound is Fishbone. I mean, they remind me so much of this group. Not saying that they they sound they sound just alike, but the way they go about doing what they do, I mean, they they definitely. I mean, that's another thing about about Cafe Tacuba. Like I said earlier, they apparently their live shows are legendary, and and Fishbone's the same thing. Where yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I've seen them play. Um, a bunch of times. And I mean, it's one of the best live shows that you ever want to see. Even now, I mean, with the lineup changing, you know, drastically over the past few years, Fishbone is, they're amazing live. They, you cannot get the same feeling from them on a record, especially from the studio, that you get from them live. Their, their live performances, I mean, on record, Fishbone's great, but on stage, they are incredible. You know, and, and apparently they're they're a lot like that too. Where I've I've had people just tell me I've never seen Cafe Tacuba live, but they're saying that you you have to see them live. They say they're just really amazing. They say it's just like this this amazing experience where you know they they have so much energy and 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 power on stage, and that and that's one of those things that that kind of you know made me think about mama They they're not just one thing. I mean, people try to. That's one thing about the record label that they used to fight about. I mean, what what do we do with them? How do we market them? I mean, you know, they're not really they're definitely not a lot of soul group or an R&B group. They're not really a new wave or a jazz group or a funk group or a metal group. They're just kind of all of that rolled into one, you know. And I mean, that's I mean, I think that's how Cafe Takuba go about their thing is that they the the members of the band like so many things seemingly and they they just put it all into what they do and you know you either kind of roll with them or you don't you know and i i think that can be just really fun for people like us who who like a variety of musics you know and don't just kind of stick to one thing so i it's good to get exposure to them even though you know i i vaguely kind of heard about them in the past and i've never really owned any of their records but just you know You know, reading about them in this book and kind of listening over their tracks makes me just want to go back, especially listen to the earlier stuff from the 90s where the so-called alternative, you know, music thing was really jumping off as far as, you know, how record labels were marketing them. And, you know, that was like right when, you know, a lot of groups Nirvana and all that were taking off. So, you know, I, I definitely would like love to go back and listen to some of their older stuff from that period and then come on up to now. So.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to also, yeah, just to check it out and see what it sounds like. Um, The first track that we're going to play is Puntos Cardinales. And uh, to me, again, this track is very (laughs) Uh, J-pop, meaning uh, Japanese pop. It reminds me of, uh, you know, countless stuff I hear on Japanese anime series. Yeah. it also reminds me kind of Cornelius. Uh, I don't know if you know him. He's another Japanese sort of electronic artist. Oh no, no, I never heard of that. Uh, it, it very much like those. It just that's that's immediately when I started listening to it, I was like, "Wow, this is like J-pop." <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a really cool song. Uh, what did you think of Puntos Cardinales?
2: Uh, just like you said, just a, a, a an interesting kind of you know. Uh, not necessarily J-pop, but just a, a an interesting mix of, of sort of, you know, pop music or, or music influences um, where they, they, they kind of take, you know, a lot of, you know, what's going on in, in various other parts of the world and, and blend it into, you know, what they have here in Mexico plus, you know, kind of, bring on something new. And I mean, uh, apparently this record too, is uh, a, one of the first records, I guess, if I read correctly, that they used uh, like regular drum kits or analog drums. I, I guess apparently before this, they they had relied heavily on uh, drum machines. Um, but, uh, you know, this is one of the, the first times that, that they decided to, to go with a, like a regular drum, uh, which, you know, sounds good you know and yeah (laughs) i i think uh you know they they're one of those bands i mean if they're if they're alive you know that definitely helps them a lot too is 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 stepping away from from a drum machine um because i imagine when they played live they they probably didn't i mean i don't know i mean they they maybe they use a drum machine on stage but i mean there's something about the 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 regular drum sound that would go better uh when on stage i'd imagine uh Yeah, yeah but uh you know, r- really good sound. the 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 guy who sings with this with this group, um, I, I forget his name, uh, has a really a really interesting and cool vocal range uh, where he does a lot of stuff with his voice. Um,
1: yeah, that's you know, uh, Ruben Isaac Albaran Ortega.
2: Yeah, I mean he's he's got a he's got a lot of crazy stuff going on with his voice. Cool, cool vocal range where he's he's just all over the place. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, just really cool
1: cool yeah let's check this out this first track uh from cafe to cuba this is puntos cardinales <laughs> This Puntos Cardinales by Café Tacuba, and we're going to move on to Que Pasada. Uh, this track for me um, was you know, it, totally different, really, than Puntos Cardinales. Um, it's very grunge, punk, hardcore, even like some ska in yeah. this one. Uh, again, just a really interesting mashup of all these influences in their own... Sound so, but but just a totally different track than Puntos Cardinales.
2: Yeah, yeah I definitely hear the hear the ska, and that, that's the fun thing about ska music that it it can kind of incorporate um different things. Obviously, you know reggae and punk kind of kind of fuse together, and then also sometimes you know some funk rhythms, and you know I, I I definitely feel like they were they were deliberate in their their mesh up of that. Th- that sort of aesthetic where they they kind of liked all those things and and then wanted to kind of bring that you know together and and again like i said i imagine them you know playing something like this live and just people going bananas you know um
1: yeah well this is one of the mosh pit songs for sure (laughs) yeah exactly
2: exactly because i mean i i would hear people say you know man it you go to their show. It' there's gonna be a mosh pit. I guarantee you. And I mean, it's it's gonna be hard mosh pit. I was like, really? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, in Mexico. And he's like, yep. And he's like, is he said it's a crazy show. You know, I mean, this is just people that would come up, you know, buying their music and and talking about them. And uh, you know, I, I just I I imagine that uh, it would be a pretty diverse crowd too. Um, you know, people who just were you know from all walks of life you know kind of showing up so again you know going back to 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 Fishbone just that's that's what they kind of remind me of is just one of those groups that 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 just they couldn't sit on one one thing and and didn't want to really be labeled as one thing so they just kind of you know like this song would would mix up a variety of sounds and you know at times could be like you know kind of aggressive and hard and then at other times you know kind of more mellow and You know, cooled out. So, you know, and that's good. I mean, you know, a a group like that, you know, that's that's just one of those things that that'll probably take them a a pretty long way. You know, and and the and the style of music they have and the the fan base, I guess. So,
1: yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. And and another thing I wanted to mention is Ruben Ortega's. You know, he's he's one of these singers that's got kind of a chameleon voice where he can. Change and adapt his voice and his vocal style to fit, you know, whatever they're doing. But yeah. at the same time, he still sounds like himself, you know. But he yeah. he can he can change his voice, you know, to fit uh, whatever style and whatever genre and stuff that they're doing, you know. So he, yeah, it's cool. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's check this out. This last track from Cafe Tacuba. This is Que Pasara. <laughs> K. Passara of Café Tacuba we're going to move on to our fourth album Uri Kane his album Ullicht slash Primal Light released in 1997 and basically this is uh, like a recasting of music by Austrian composer Gustav Mahler uh, who's composing around 1900 huge conductor composer who composed massive works for orchestra and choruses and, and just these huge, huge, uh, not just huge in forces, but hugely long works. And it's so huge in conceptions kind of every way. Um, and what Uri Kane does is, uh, he'll take this music of Gustav Mahler and he'll just sort of recast it into, you know a barn burning klezmer tune or uh, you know late 50s bebop jazz trio or a hip-hop version with a DJ or or you know just all these sort of different ways um, and uh, just a little bit about Uri Kane he was born in 1956 pianist really experimental sort of forward forward looking pianist. Uh, One thing I thought was interesting is he studied early on with composer George crumb, who we're going to get to actually later when we get to the Kronos quartet album, black angels, Uh, which I love. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. George crumb is the composer of black angels, but um, yeah. And I was looking at his discography and there's another album I saw that I have not had a chance to listen to yet, but I want to listen to it uh, from 2001. Where he collaborated with uh, Amir Questlove Thompson and Christian McBride, Um, the album is called "The Philadelphia Experiment." He's got other people on there like uh, jazz guitarist Pat Martino, which is he's an amazing player. Yeah, I I bet that's uh, a
2: really good record. I'd like to hear that too. Yeah, yeah,
1: but uh, um, I don't know. What are your impressions, initial impressions of this album?
2: Well, and and somebody who the the first thing when I, I first started reading about him and listening to the tracks. Um, that were selected. The first person that came to my mind, which is somebody who he's he's already worked with, apparently, is John Zorn. Um, John Zorn is one of those guys that, I mean, on the surface, I mean, he's, you know, I guess avant-garde jazz musician, but he's so much more than that. And I mean, that's what I get from this guy where he he can take, you know, classical jazz whatever compositions and just totally break them down and then build them back up to where the essence of what was there originally you can still sense it but it's almost something brand freaking new and, <laughs> yeah and that's what's really cool <laughs> I like that about, brand freaking new
1: <laughs> yeah exactly I mean
2: that's the only way I know how to put that yeah. I mean yeah that's what I sense in him and like I said when I initially listened to these tracks I mean I I didn't really think about the original composition as much even though i could kind of tell he was drawing from it i was kind of seeing you know what he was doing with it in the now and i mean that coming from somebody who totally understands music seemingly like he does is is a great sort of gift like i said going back to to John Zorn he's just one of those guys that i mean he he knows you know you know, definitely. You know, jazz composition and, and, and even some classical music. You know, like a like a monster, but he also can can take it and um, apply. You know, uh, an aesthetic to it that's that's almost like taking classical music and and redoing it in a in a punk rock sense. Which you know, you figure, how is that going to work? But he makes it work, you know. And and it's the same guy, you know, the same thing with with this guy, uh, you know, Yuri Kane. He he's just totally, you know, able to, to transform musics, but but not, you know, to where it's 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 silly or sloppy. Um somebody else too that he reminds me a little bit of is Sun Ra. Uh Sun Ra is just one of those guys that, you know, over his his history was, you know, kind of accused of of just making music that was just you know, I for lack of a better way of saying it, gibberish or just notes on a page, you know, and, and somebody accused him one time of of writing music, you know, or, or making music. He's like, my 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 five year old could play that on a piano and then Son Rogers looked and he's like, he might be able to play it, but could he write it, you know? And I was like, man, okay, I you know, now I kind of see, you <laughs> know, where where a lot of a lot of that's coming from I me. Mean, if you have a mind for music, I mean, you can pretty much write anything, and it may sound like it's it's chaos, but it's it's coming from a, a point of view where it 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 has a structure. And um, he has, to me, he has one of those minds where he can totally rewrite something, and it, and it has purpose. It's not just something he just. Slapped together, you know, like, you know, by accident, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wildly creative. This guy, Ernie yeah. Kane, you know, there's a, another group uh, that's really active right now and they've been active for a long time, but they're doing some similar stuff to this called the bad plus. Have you heard of the bad plus? No, no. Um They're doing, I know they're on tour right now doing something similar to this actually with a uh, Stravinsky's Rite of spring but they're just a trio. I think there's a, a video I watched on YouTube, if it's still there, of them doing uh, part of the Ride of Spring, man. It is unbelievable. It's incredible. It's incredible. The, these guys are really just amazing, the Bad Plus. But, yeah, they're doing some similar stuff to this. But Cool. I'll um, have to check that out. But, uh, yeah, we're going to start with uh, we're going to play both of the tracks that he took from Mahler's Symphony No. 2, Mahler's Resurrection Symphony. And uh, the first one we're going to play from Symphony No. 2, uh, this is subtitled Primal Light by Earl Uri Kane. And uh, this track really features this, you know, the strings and other wind instruments playing a sort of, you know, austere backdrop from. Mahler's Symphony and uh, it features this really passionate and fiery and intense violin improvisation over this backdrop um, I could not find the violinist name unfortunately uh, but uh, just really it, you know it, it's the, the violin improvisation is sort of a mix of uh, you know a jazz player and like a passionate over-the-top classical violin concerto cadenza, you know, sort of what, what it is. Uh, what did you think of this? track?
2: I, I basically, I agree with you. I mean, when I first listened to it, it, it's like a very unconventional mix of, of classical and jazz, uh, musics, if you will. And, and, and I think that's the first thing that, that, that brought on my, my John Zorn, uh, sort of comparison where it was, it was two types of musics, put together where they, they don't really seemingly normally would fit, but, but they work in a, in a very sort of esoteric and and unconventional sense. Um, And it's, it's something that, that doesn't happen a lot, especially in popular music, but it's, it's something where when, when you know the musicians are really good, you know, they, they make it work. Um, in a sort of spontaneous sense where they they have a mindset, especially in jazz where where people almost have telepathy at times in, in different trios or combos or whatever, where they, they just kinda know how to make a track work, especially on a on a way wavelength to where it's it's somewhat spontaneous, you know, even though you have a a certain form you may follow, but you kind of deviate from it. And in this one, I mean it, it can be somewhat wild in the deviation where um, it, it, it sounds crazy at times, but it, it still is, it's cool with me, you know, because of, especially the, the, the instruments, I mean, especially the analog side of, of the instruments, the way they, they work. And, you know, this is not something that, that is, you know, done seemingly sitting down at a computer, but it's still, it morphs together and it, and it makes it, it makes it work for me. That is, I should say. And, uh, like I said, uh, definitely, you know, sort of like a an, an interesting class from the, the jazz and, and classical sides of music that that, that really is, is kind of cool.
1: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So let's check this out. This first track from Uri Kane. And uh, this is a Symphony Number no. 2 Resurrection Primal Light. we just heard symphony number two resurrection primal light and we're going to move on to the second sort of example or take from from the symphony number two um this is totally different (laughs) than the first one uh it starts as this just pretty much straight sort of upbeat bebop you know um i and you know i don't know what connection this has to the Mahler I mean I know Mahler Symphony number no. two uh, really well and uh, you know possibly some of the harmonic progressions are from them I don't know I have no idea what connection this has to the Mahler Symphony I can't I can't hear it but basically what it does is it it's sort of you know this upbeat bebop really cool and then uh, halfway through the song or halfway through the piece, uh, the beat totally changes. So it, it the beat changes to this slow, kind of more hip hop sort of beat. Um, and the bass, the jazz bass, you know, jazz sort of uh, pizzicato bass, uh, starts playing the beginning of Mahler Symphony and sort of uses this beginning of the symphony number no. two as a sort of launching pad to do this extended improvisation. You know, um, and it it has these, you know, so it has this uh, hip hop beat going on. It has these sort of random noises going on, these random sounds. Uh, Also, this uh, DJ noises like, you know, record scratching and this 70s funk guitar sort of a la Shaft or something, you know, (laughs) Um, that's going on at the same time. Um, (laughs) I just thought. You know, because at first when I was listening to it, it has the bebop part. I was like, OK, this is cool bebop. I have no idea what this has to do with anything of Mahler. And then as soon as that beat comes in and the bass came in with the beginning of the symphony, I just started laughing. I was just like, oh, OK, you know, I see I kind of see where this is going. But it's just it's totally random, but totally cool. And uh, it totally somehow it works. You know, um, what did you think of this?
2: Well again like i said it it's it just one of those things that i i, I thought about I, and i say john zorn and, and john zorn has an uh, an album called Naked City where the the influences on that record i mean they they range from from punk to country to, to jazz to classical and sometimes all in one song and, and that's a lot of what you know this kind of reminds me of is somebody who is really smart about how to make music and, and play it, but really unconventional about how they bring it to the table. And I mean, that's one of the things about him that makes me think about I mean about about John Zorn, it makes me think about Yuri King, where they, you know, they're they're kind of similar in that respect. And this song, like you said, it 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 it's all over the place. And then some of it doesn't resemble anything of what the original concept of the original, you know, piece was about, you know, it's, it's almost like it's brand new. Um, but still, like you said, really good, really well played. Some of it, you know, at times kind of, kind of crazy. Um, but it's, it's just kind of like one of those guys that, that can kind of bring all sorts of things onto a track and lay them down where people actually play them you know i mean we were talking about sampling earlier but i mean this is somebody who who brings in musicians and and arranges uh, styles and and genres that normally don't go together <laughs> and uh, that can be very very cool uh, especially when it works like this uh where you just kind of like you don't know you don't, don't know what to expect uh the next moment the track is kind of you know ticking along that that can be very fun
1: yeah yo yeah to- totally fun and uh it, totally crazy and uri kane with his mind he makes it work he totally makes it work man so this oh, yeah. is uh this is the last track from uri kane and his album to primal light this is uh more from symphony number no. two resurrection Symphony Number 2, Resurrection, uh, by Uri Kane. And we're going to move on to our last album today, Camarón de la Isla. His album, La Leyenda del Tiempo, released in 1979. And this album is, you know, really revolutionized flamenco music in Spain, revolutionized the genre, brought it into the modern era, uh, brought in influences of rock and jazz and other world music. Uh, music influences and uh, Camarón de Isla was a uh, one of the most influential flamenco singers really of all time Uh, yeah this this album La Leyenda del Tiempo that means the legend of time Um, I'm not sure if it means the, the legend of time like time as a as a concept or the legend of the time, meaning Camarón as a living legend of uh, flamenco music. I'm not sure what the meaning is, but um, it could be either one of those.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But uh, he started, you know, in the late 60s, 69, uh, recording with the legendary flamenco guitarist Paco de Lucia. And uh, he and Paco de Lucia recorded together all the way up until 1978 and the guitarist on this album, the main flamenco guitarist, is a pupil of Paco de Lucia uh, named Tomatito. Uh, so it's still in that, that same style. But uh, yeah, what were your impressions of this album?
2: Uh, uh, really amazing. I mean, the, the performance, first of all, of the musicians and, and then the main artist, his vocals, I mean, so far what I've listened to are I mean just brilliant. I mean some amazing, amazing performances on this record. It was it was a record I was totally unfamiliar with. And um, you know, the aforementioned Paco de Lucia, I'd heard him, but this guy I I never really knew much about him. And and now after discovering him, he's another person I, I'm definitely excited about looking into uh the history. Of, of him and his music, very good record. Um, you know, the the book kind of mentions that this is like the the Sergeant Peppers for flamenco music, which um, I don't know. I, I I guess that's that's kind of a good impression, but it's it's a lot more than that. I mean, I mean, just some amazing sounds on this record that I've heard so far. I mean, you know, great keyboard solos amazing guitar solos and then just some brilliant brilliant vocals um you know just a very well recorded album even if you're really not into music like this per se i mean it's the way this record sounds i mean it's it's just tremendous very good i mean just amazing performances you know from of the variety idea of artists who are on here I mean just some very talented people I would say I mean overall I'm I was blown away from what I heard just um some really good stuff good good to have this one included in the book I mean this is oh yeah this this is a worthwhile inclusion I mean for me I mean like I said what I've heard I'm I mean I just I've just been floored by some of the performances and like I said I I can't wait to listen to to more of this and and go through um uh, some of his other uh, recordings, um, but but this track in particular, I think the the first track we're going to listen to is uh, uh, La I don't, don't want to mispronounce this La, La Yanda del Tiempo. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that song is it. it at times, is it's going so fast, <laughs> and in the 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 way the vocal and and music you know are arranged i mean it's almost like a breakneck speed in which you know i i imagine the people that were recording it i mean they were they must have been you know on the top of their game uh because some of this song is it's it's extraordinarily fast in in the the way it kind of you know paces itself and and just really great harmonies um just a, you know just a tremendous song uh Tremendous talent this guy has. Um, I mean, I and I'm pretty sure you. I mean, I know you. You you've liked a lot of flamenco guitar over the years that I've I've known you. You, you were a person that kind of introduced me to a lot of different people uh, who played this type of music. Aldi Miola, I know you're like a fan of his. Um, and uh, for me, this is just a, another another example of someone who uh, takes that type of music to a whole different level probably that it had never been taken before.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's the point with this record, you know, is that he took this genre of music, uh, flamenco, to, yeah, places that had never gone before. You know, in this particular track we're going to listen to, there's an electric bass in here, there's an electric piano and a, a different electronic keyboard, there's a drum set. You know, these are all instruments that are not part of of the traditional flamenco tradition you know and then traditional flamenco tradition the rhythm is created by you know the guitarist strumming and also uh, tapping on the guitar it's created by castanets and then it's also created by the dancers you know the dancers sort of finger snapping clap hand clapping and stomping their feet yeah the the flamenco dancing is a very foot stomping sort of almost tap dancing type of type of dance, you know, and it creates, that's, that's what creates the traditional flamenco rhythm. Um, So all this other stuff, you know, a lot of people, again, when we talk about these people who revolutionize very traditional genres of music, a lot of people get really upset, you know, you're messing with the tradition, you know, you can't do that. And so uh, there were a lot of people excited about, you know, uh, coming on, bringing this music into the modern era and there's a lot of people that were really pissed off at him (laughs) uh, for messing with it and uh yeah so that's what that's what this track is right here la Leyenda del tiempo it's uh really kind of traditional fast-paced flamenco with all these other instruments thrown in there you know from the rock and jazz world and and uh to create a new sound and, and, and something again in 1979 that was totally new um, so yeah let's check this out this first track cool. from uh, Camarón this is La Leyenda del Tiempo <music> Enda del Tiempo, and we're going to move on to Nana del Caballo Grande, which means uh, the literal translation is the big horse named Nana. Um, and this is on poetry by uh, uh, I cannot, <laughs> Frederico Garcia Lorca, uh, Spanish, famous Spanish uh, poet, um, which really, you know, you wouldn't really find High poetic language like this again in typical flamenco music. Um, this is poetry that was never meant to be sung, you know. This is a high, high minded, you know, high, high, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, I don't know, highly stylized language poetry, yeah, (laughs) is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and uh, it's been adapted here for this music the music itself is a raga style i mean we have a, a drone going on with a sitar and uh it's really a vocal showcase for cameron and it's it's indian i mean it's almost more indian than spanish yeah um, yeah you know, I, would, if you, I would totally agree with you yeah if you replaced Camarón singing with an Indian singer singing exactly the same words and exactly the same vocal lines it would sound straight up Indian what really makes this sound flamenco at all is you know Camarón's singing style Um, and uh, you know you can really hear his influence on other artists from the region like uh, for instance Gypsy Kings Uh, have you ever heard Gypsy Kings you know this yeah the main singer for gypsy kings really sings very much in the style of uh of uh, camarón de la isla and um i don't know a lot of people have seen i just always remember that scene from the big lebowski um the scene where they're in the bowling alley and it's the jesus you remember the jesus scene Uh, oh yeah (laughs) and the, the the music that's playing is gypsy king's version of hotel california it, but they do it in a sort of flamenco style, and it's sung in Spanish. Um, mm-hmm. and, but it's in the same vocal style of, as uh, Camon de la Isla." Um, yeah, what did you think of this track?
2: Well, I totally agree with you about the the Gypsy Kings uh, comparison. I mean, they they definitely, I would say, took an influence. Uh, you know, from especially from his vocal style. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's like a like you said, it, it it's a track that definitely sounds. Indian influence almost middle eastern influence at times too um not necessarily like a a record that's a spanish flamenco record but it it works and um you know the the guy obviously has a tremendous voice i mean you know i i've never really you know thought of the the style sort of tying together like this where you have like you said, a you know a, a sitar and kind of Indian-sounding, you know, atmosphere, along with a you know a flamenco-style vocalist, you know, singing over the track. I mean, it it really is is really great performance um, on his part, and I just never really thought that that it would kind of blend like this. But I mean, I, I'm I'm sure that's where the comparison to, uh, you know, Sergeant Pepper's kind of comes along, where the Beatles just decided to kind of, you know, bring in a variety of influences that that they, you know, were really into at the time, and and kind of cut away from what they were used to doing, thinking to themselves, you know, we we we've, we've come this far doing, you know, music a certain way, and now we have to do something to kind of, you know break out of what we normally are and uh you know again going back to them you know when when sergeant peppers first came out i'm I'm sure there were some people that did not like it because it was so not like what the beatles normally were you know um you know just kind of great pop tunes and really good harmonies and guitar work you know and and influence you know from from the blues and 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 you know r&b music from from the united states but but like, you know, the Beatles, uh, Cameron decided, you know, flamenco can be so much more than what it's already been. And I'm going to show you, you know, so it's it's a it's a great record to be included. Um, going back to kind of what we, we talked about last week with uh, Tom Moon kind of excluding some records that, you know, we felt like should have been included uh, by a variety of artists like we were talking about David Bowie only having you know one album I think this is a great example of an album that you know most people probably didn't know existed and and it's it's good to have included for the style of music and and not just that but just the pure performance on the record where so much of this is so very good even if you're not into flamenco style music you you have to give credit to the performances you know vocally and musically on this record they are all very very good
1: yeah yeah definitely i mean yeah his voice just just soars on this uh on this track it's it's really yeah. it's really kind of striking but yeah let's check out this last track from Camaron de la Isla this is Nana del Caballo Grande
3: Na na niño na, na. Da-
1: just heard Nana Del Caballo Grande, and that is going to do it for this episode, episode number 32 of the 1000 Recordings Podcast. If you'd like to send us an email, send us one at 1000 podcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000RP. You can join us on Facebook. You can go to our website where we have links to all of the recordings. That we play. If you want to purchase them And uh, That URL is 1000rp.blogspot.com And there's also information on the website About how you can sponsor The podcast uh, Also if you get a chance Head on over to iTunes And uh, leave us a rating and a review And we will read your review On the air And that would also help us greatly In uh, getting out to more listeners And um, yeah, next week. We we finally finished with the bees. We're finally out of the bees.
2: There's a lot of bees.
1: <laughs> I know. So we're finally out of the bees, finally into the seas. And next week, uh, we're going to start with a German group, Can. Their album Tago Mago. <clears throat> so I am totally never heard of this group.
2: Oh yeah, Can's kind of kind of experimental. Uh, our guard uh, definitely got some some interesting things going on it'll be fun to talk about them
1: cool then we have Naticano, Naticano's Mariachi Los Camperos their album Viva El Mariachi
2: yeah mariachi music I, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is good Mexican food and just getting drunk mm. You know, just uh, that's like the first thing because I mean, obviously, that's you know, it's not always that, but you know, for me, it's the first thing that comes to my mind, especially here in Texas. I mean, just real good mariachi music and mariachi bands. You know, you set up at a party or wedding or whatever, and it's like let's eat, let's drink, and and then go to sleep. You know? Yeah, and I
1: mean so. that's that's the association it has for me too, and because again, I'm from Houston also, but man. You know, I live in Indiana now, and I so miss that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I miss that so much—the um, food and the music and the atmosphere—and just oh, I miss it so much. But
2: yeah, it's, it's nothing like going, especially if you go to a restaurant where there's a good mariachi band, where they have the horns and, and yeah. the guitars and the guys singing. That I mean, it's just an amazing experience to to be you know present with a real live mariachi band. That's you know yeah like, anyway. Uh, that should be fun too.
1: Oh yeah. And, uh, then Captain, uh, Captain yeah. Beefheart. Oh yeah, this should be fun.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, he's quite. He was quite a character. Uh, <laughs> definitely uh, somebody who was very unconventional in his approach to music and and life in general. Um, just uh, just just passed away not too long ago.
1: That's right. I think that's right maybe three or four years ago i think i'm not sure but i have to look yeah something
2: but, like i don't think it was that long ago it's it's been it's been more recent than that i want to say i want to say it's been maybe like a year ago i think because i remember people posting okay, that's about it. him okay when he died uh and and going back and looking at some interviews of him he if you go on youtube and and look at uh uh Dave Letterman, he was uh, on Dave Letterman one time. Where he he had a really good interview where he talked about his childhood and, and some other things. But anyway, Troutfish, I'm sorry, Trot Mask Replica is the album I think. Yeah. That uh, Captain yep. Beefheart and his magical band. We're going to talk about also. Cool. Um And uh, the best of the Caravans. Uh,
1: Again, a group mm. I, I'm not familiar with, but... Uh. Yeah,
2: me either neither. I'm assuming gospel music. Uh, you know, and, and what's funny about gospel music sometimes is that you'll have a traditional gospel song that, that everybody sings, and you'll you'll not necessarily know the history of it. So that'll be good to get into because, you know, we may know something from them and, and, and not even know that we know it. So, you know, gospel music is, is just one of those things that, you know, people will sing, you know, songs... Generations, you know, on and on, and, and not even know exactly, you know, where the original came from. You where, where you know, even know like, um, you know, this song was written by so and so, and not how old it is or who sang it first. But either way, that should be fun too.
1: Oh yeah, and then finally, James Carr. You got my mind messed up. This is an R and B record. Uh, right. Do you, do you know James Carr at all? No,
2: no, I've not heard of him before. Okay, Uh, cool. That should be fun too. Uh, All right, man. Definitely some stuff for next week.
1: Yeah, some like some new stuff. Then some stuff that uh, again we've never heard before. So yeah, that'll be cool to get into. Um, Awesome. So until next week, um, yeah, we'll come back with five new albums from Tom Moon's book.
2: Great. Good to talk to everybody. (laughs) Good to talk to you again, Tony. Uh, Yeah, you too, man. Fun. Cool. Working my lawn. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, dude, for me, like for me, just for me, go out and find a mariachi band and eat some, some good Mexican food and uh, drink for me. I think I might have to do that. <laughs> yeah. Do it for me, man. I can't cool. do it here in, in Indiana. <laughs> <Aww>. I know. <laughs>
2: it's a shame. I know. <laughs>
1: All right, man. Well, uh, yeah. See you and everybody else next time.
2: All right. Everybody have a great week. Good talking. Thanks. Bye-bye.